Almost 75 years ago, it was in the year 1948, there was a guy named Alfred Kinsey, and he wrote a book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. Now, in his uh, book, he came to the thesis, thesis and then eventually conclusion that males are merely primal animals and that we are like any other species with the exception that we have greater intellect. The notion of the book, though, was that there was no physical desire that should be suppressed simply because we are animals. And it opened the door to the segue of the 1960s, which in the 1960s became the the sexual revolution. And over the last 60 plus years, we have seen a degradation of marriage within the the cultural structure. Uh, We now know that uh, in the culture we live in and what was supported and even celebrated over 60 years ago was no longer a monogamous relationship. It was no longer a male and a female leaving their father and mother and clinging to one flesh. It really became the You do what you want to do and be what you want to be and explore any way you want. And if you have the notion that Kinsey had and many of his contemporaries, it would mean that that you can explore this area any way you want because there's nothing to be suppressed because you are merely an animal with greater intellectual capacities. Now, the reason that that is a challenge is because if you and I here today don't support that view, you and I would be called old school, uh, in a lot of ways, we would be called Bible thumpers. You, you might hear derogatory terms in some ways that would make you feel like holding a traditional view is, is not only awkward, but in some ways unsupported. You might even in some ways feel less than. And today, I just want to encourage you in a handful of ways. One is through the Word of God in a few moments. But more than that is even in a monogamous, God-centered relationship. And what I want you to see today is where romance began. Now before we get to that, I want to welcome those that are joining us on our Edgewood campus and those that are joining us online. Also want to just go ahead and tell you that today we're going to do our best to keep it PG, maybe PG-13. And then for all of you that are in the generation where you're like, man, we don't talk about sex in church. I'm just going to say, you're wrong. You're wrong, and I'm going to show you why you're wrong, and uh, I look forward to it. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Now, some of you are like, I've heard of that book, but I've never read it because it's over my head, and and, and it's talking about love, and it's going to be more than I can endure. Well, today, we're going to talk about it. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Now, maybe you're kind of new to your Bible, and you're like, I don't really know where. I know it's somewhere. I've heard of it, but I don't know where. Well, here's, here's a good trick. If you got your Bibles, you can turn. If you're really good, you turn to the middle of your Bible, you land in the book of Psalms. If you weren't really good, it means that you landed in Job to the left or Proverbs to the right. Well, either way, if you land in Job, Psalms, or Proverbs, you're going to head to your right. And then past Proverbs is Ecclesiastes, and then there you find it, an eight-chapter book called The Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is where romance began. Yeah, you thought it was Shakespeare. Romeo, oh Romeo, oh wherefore art thou Romeo? No, 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 that's not where it began. It began prior to that. And it actually begins even prior to this book that was written roughly 900 years before Jesus. A lot of people have debate about who wrote the book. 
Solomon was a man who later went astray in his life, and we know that he was married, had multiple wives and concubines, and so a lot of people assume, well, it couldn't have been Solomon who wrote this book, because he seems to be talking affectionately about one lover. And a lot of people would suppose that you can't have both. And, and so in some ways, we struggle with the concept that Solomon would write this book and that it would be God-inspired. But I hold to, and I think the traditional view is that Solomon did indeed write the book. And I also think that this is a depiction, not merely of, of Solomon's life and love relationship, but I really think it's a depiction of what a love relationship should be. What real romantical love should look like. And as we kind of walk through this text today, I think we're going to be compelled to do a couple of things. One, you might be compelled in here to elbow someone. And I would just say, hey, listen, the only contact that should happen today is the Super Bowl later, okay? Like, or the makeup kind of, you know, uh, love that you would have later after you talk about this text, okay? That's permissible as well. But, Song of Solomon, I think, could be broken up in a handful of sections. Um, I think it's debated uh, about how many sections. Uh, to me, one of the greatest themes is to, if you look at just the poetry style and the linguistic nature of how it is written and, and spoken, like it's too complicated to go into. But what I will tell you is you see it's a love story. And it's a love story that really begins with people falling in love, and then you see from there, you see the fulfillment of love. And then not too long after you see the fulfillment of love, you get the frustration of love. Any frustration with love? But in the midst of the frustration of love, what you see is the book concludes with this idea of faithfulness in love. It really is a picture of a blissful young couple and uh, we'll dive in and we'll see. Today, we're going to cover a, a rather extensive part of it. So if you check out for very long, you'll be lost. But my hope is, is that this is an invigorating book and that you see it in ways that you've never seen it because you've never read it. Um, but even if you have read it, that you see it in a way that's incredibly helpful. It begins in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And it simply says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Which means that this is, this is just one of the, the best. This is the poetical structure that is just fantastic. And then you see a call out from this young maiden. Anytime that you see she or him or others, it's just the, the, the nature of the, of the text. And it's this conversation in poetry that is going back and forth. And so here it is, she, this young maiden, speaks up and she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And she just says, look, you, you allure me. And she's talking about this young man. But what's interesting is that she doesn't just merely say, hey, let me come and, and kiss you. But she also says that your name is oil poured out. The idea is, she goes, I recognize who you are. And it's not merely because of your physical stature, or because of your fine looks. It's because of your character. I've seen how you treat people. Your name is fine among all the single ladies. And I think, I, you know, that song, all the single ladies, all single, you know that? That's what it pops into my mind. Right? Like, all the single ladies are talking about Solomon, this young man, a man of character. And that's what... That's what they see, and it's what she sees. And she says, because of who you are, she says, I long to be with you. 
And it's just this first kindling of attraction. Matter of fact, I remember when Kelly and I met. Kelly and I met about 23 years ago this spring. And uh, we were on a student government trip. I was attending Trinity Valley Community College. Uh, Hick Jick, y'all know, uh, for some of you. And I was playing football there. My wife was a part of the Cardats, uh, their drill team. Uh, We were both there. And I was in student government for two reasons. One is I didn't have to go to workouts if we had a meeting. And two, I didn't have to go to class. And so we would have student government meetings, and and that was why I was in there. And we had a trip that spring, went to Corpus Christi, and all these different colleges go, and you go to this student government trip. And I went on that trip because I was like, who doesn't want to go to Corpus Christi and the beach? And so I went to the beach. I got out of school. We left early. It was like a three- or four-day trip. And while I was there, I met Kelly Partridge. Now, there's a lot to the story I can't go into, but I'll tell you, there was this younger lady that was attracted to me, and she was following me around. And you can ask Kelly the story. And uh, I was like, hey, listen, dear, I'm with her. And Kelly played along with it. And sure enough, we hit it off. We get back to Athens, Texas, and I look at her and I said, hey, baby, call me. And she did. She called me. She called me. Now, there's a lot of you in here that you're like traditionalists. Oh, like she should have never called you. And I'm just going to say, hey, Song of Solomon, look what happens right here. She's like, he's so fine. He's so fine. He blows my mind. He's it. Hey, let me kiss him. Let me kiss him with the kisses of his mouth. Like you see her making this plea. It's an attraction. And you remember it, right? You remember when your heart beats so fast and in some ways it's this love. Look, at it goes on. It says, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you? It's the idea other people are looking in saying, oh, yes, he is so great. He is so wonderful to behold. Then look what she says in verse 5, chapter 1. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kadar, which were, were dark tents, like the curtains of Solomon, which were likely black. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were very angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. What she says is, she says, I worked outside in the fields, and my brothers mistreated me. They made me labor for my wages, and I was out working. And she said, and as I worked, she said, I didn't keep my own vineyard. And when you see the idea of vineyard or garden in this text, is speaking uh, oftentimes about the anatomy and in many cases about the, the most private places of an anatomy. But what she's saying is she goes, don't look at me because my skin is dark. She said, I have, I have taken a beating from the sun and I've neglected to care for my own body as a result of all my work. Nonetheless, she says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pastor, your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She says, but listen, even though I wouldn't encourage you to look at me because I'm nothing special. I'm nothing to to behold. You are, and I can't wait to see you. Matter of fact, hey, where are you going to be at the noon hour? Now, you might remember when you were dating, particularly maybe you met at school or whatever, you'd go out of your way down a hallway to a particular class and you just find yourself in the same space that your beloved was. That's the idea. She, she goes, listen, I, I want to know where, where you're grazing your flocks today. I might happen to show up. But then she says something very important. But she says, I, 
why should I be like the one who veils herself? She says, but I want you to make something clear. She goes, I won't be like the one who veils herself. And, and she's speaking there to something in the culture that day, which would be promiscuity and more than that, even prostitution of the day, where a woman would allure herself to a man merely for her own gain. She says, I am not that. And she says, I want to make, and she makes it very clear. She makes it very clear that she is not only looking for a man who was above, um, he, he is respectful and kind and, and he is above reproach, but she says, I am that way too. And she says, I am respectable. And though you might not look at me on the outside and call me lovely, she says, I am lovely on the inside. But here it is, this young maiden is looking for this man and, and they seem to be attracted to one another. Matter of fact, she says this, uh, after they go back and forth praising one another in chapter one, look at verse two where she says, I am the rose of Sharon. I am a lily of the valleys. Now she uses the word rose of Sharon there and, and the word there in the Hebrew is a, is a word that would simply remind you of, of of like a bulbed flower. So it could have been a lily, could have been an iris. In some ways, it would have been something that would have been very common in the day. That you, As you walk through the hills and the valleys, that she was just one among many was the idea. But then you see his response in verse 2. But you are a lily among brambles. So is my love among the young women. He goes, listen, I don't know what you're saying, chick. You're like, you think you're dark and you don't think you're worth looking at. But he goes... I, I enjoy you. He goes, you are more than just a common lily. You are a lily among the brambles. If everything else is ordinary, you're extraordinary. And you just see this idea of this young love being conveyed back and forth. He just says, you are stellar. You remember those days? Matter of fact, if you are to continue on in chapter 2, I just want you to see the theme of it. Look at verse 3. She says, you're an apple tree among the trees of the forest. Basically, you're not a Lebanon cedar. You're not just an ordinary thing. You're an apple tree. Like, you're bearing great fruit. She, matter of fact, she says, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Some of you are like, ugh, you know, like, I, this is impossible. But you remember those days if you've ever felt love. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then, she continues on. She says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. He's leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. She goes, You're a stud. You're a stud. Ladies, when's the last time that you looked at your man? And you're like, Hey, baby, you are a stud. Listen, it will go a long way. And what she does is in her love, in her youth, she goes, listen, there's not any to be compared to you. My eye is on you. You are not only the apple of my eye, but I find myself under the shadow of your wings. You are a delight to me. You are a pleasure. You are a joy. I find security and value and worth when I'm around you. That's the idea she's conveying. And she just says, hey, listen, you, you're, you are the, the gazelle, the young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. 
my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful, and come away. The winter is past. And you get this imagery that he too is searching after her. And he's, he starts behind the wall, but then he kind of works his way through the marketplace and he finds himself a little bit closer to her fruit stand. And then eventually you see him, he's right there. And he goes, hey, beautiful way, one, come away. Let's, let's enjoy our time together. Which is so incredible. Arise, my love, for behold, the winter is past. Now, y'all might remember the series of Chronicles of Narnia, and you might remember the whole picture of Narnia. What was it that they were in? The dreaded winter. And what was it that, the, that Edward and Lucy and them dreamed of? They longed for the day of spring. And friends, there's many of us, even in this season of our lives, we're like, man, I'm just wanting a few days where the, the clouds move away and the rain falls back. We just have some sunshine. We have some warmth. We're looking for a spring day because what happens in spring? Things bud. They blossom. This, my friends, is what's happening in this relationship. They are in the spring of their relationship. Things are blossoming, things are budding. It's a beautiful picture of what love is. The winter is past. It says in verse 11, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove. <laughs> oh, my dove. In the cleft of the rocks, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You remember those days? I'm like, okay, you say goodnight. Oh, no, no, you say goodnight. Okay, no, you say goodnight. And over like just like 40 minutes of like, okay, baby, no, it's your turn. Good night, good night. And you just stay on the phone till 2 in the morning. Now, some of you in here, you're like, well, we didn't have phones back there in that day. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You just, you did the dial-up deal, you know? It was the old rotary. It took you a little longer to call and connect. But you remember those days. And that's this picture of where love is. It, it begins with an attraction, and then it moves to a godly courtship. And what's interesting about this is that you indeed have a godly courtship. You have a man whose name is to be revered. He's respected among his peers. And you have a woman who says, I am of no comely appearance. Like, don't look at me because I'm not, you're not going to be mesmerized by my looks. Although this young man says, no, 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 you are, to be, you're, you're something to be beheld. But more than that, they have impeccable character. And they love one another well. But you'll do some silly things for love, Right? So let me tell you all this. I was in junior year of my college. Uh, I was taking a lot of my final classes, kind of getting ready. I probably had like, you know, about a year left. And so it, it might have even been the very first part of my senior kind of core classes I was working on. Kelly's working on her core classes as well. She's a mathematical major. And so I decided to hop into one of her upper level math classes just so I could be with her. That's one of the dumbest things you'll do for love. It is by the grace of God I passed it. And to this day, I have absolutely no idea what I took or how I passed it. And get this, it's upper level, but it was called elementary math. <laughs> I was a jock, football guy, right? But I was in love so much that I signed up 
for elementary math level 4001. That's called foolishly in love. That's where they are. The springs bud. Then she says, but catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. The idea there in verse 15 is, is that when the spring arises, there's a fox in Israel. The same word there is a jackal, but it's a small predator that desires to eat up the fruit. And so as the grapes are budding and other things are flowering, this fox is going around from vineyard to vineyard and they're eating the spoils. Now, anytime that you see this idea of foxes or this idea of jackal in the Hebrew, which is four or five times the Old Testament, it's always negative. And so the idea is this pesky critter is, is in some ways seeking to devour their springtime love. Now, you might ask the question, well, what could ruin springtime love? And we would just say, you and me. Pretty quickly, right? A pesky fox of selfishness, a pesky fox of self-interest, of pride, of anger. Uh, there's a lot of pesky foxes, right? A pesky fox of impurity in our culture. There's a lot of things that over time will, will take a spring love and will corrode it quickly. And here what you see is you see this incredible picture of what love is to be. Even there in verse 16, it says, My beloved is mine, and I am his, and he grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. She says, I can't wait to be with you. And in some ways, you see the allurement of even physical contact there that oftentimes can be overwhelmed by that love, that puppy love stage that a lot of us would look on and go, oh, it's just puppy love, it's not going to last. She says, there's a temptation for you to come and dwell among the mountains. And she says that in a very physical and literal sense. I want to be with you, but yet you see this idea of purity, that they catch the foxes that could in some ways corrupt the love. That's the idea. Then you get to chapter 3, and when you get to chapter 3, you see this idea of the marriage and all that's going to take place there. What you see is a bride who is awaiting this, this marriage union. Now, real quickly, just so you kind of have an understanding of what's happening here, but also in Jewish tradition, a Jewish family would meet with another Jewish family upon the arrangement of such love. And a father of the bride and the father of the groom would meet up. And the father of the groom would pay a dowry for this young woman. A dowry was a payment to secure their betrothal. The betrothal was like what we would think is a modern-day engagement, much more serious, because then... It's, it's literally done, and there's, there's commitments that are made, and then there's even ways the bride is marked to say she is set apart. And then what happens after the dowry is paid is the bridegroom, the young man, will go away, and in Jewish tradition, they would begin to add on to their house. And uh, you would get this idea of him adding on while he's adding on to his father's house and preparing a place for their future and their union and their family. This woman is staying behind. She's still at her father's house, but there's a promise of commitment because she has now been bought with a price that she should be made pure and that she can't be going out among the, the maidens and around the town square. She is now a resolute set heart on this one in whom the springtime love or the springtime love has abounded with. And so she waits in purity. 
Now look, the reason that's important is because if you and I know anything about our Bibles, it's the same love in which we see affectionately displayed for us through the grace of our God. Matter of fact, you might remember the language in John chapter 14 when Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples. He says to them this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, for in my Father's house there are many rooms. And if, and if I go, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, you need to know that I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. Now, if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. But where I go, there you may be also. Now, here's the picture. Jesus takes and pays a great price for his disciples. He buys them. This is Paul writes to the church of Corinth when he says, you're bought with a price, you're not your own, so glorify God with your body. The idea there is be set apart. Be pure. Be waiting on your husband, Christ, the bridegroom. Where is he now, friends? Thomas says, hey, I don't know where you're going. How do I follow you? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then he promises the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, I'm going away, but don't worry, you won't be alone. And so in the waiting, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. And at the appointed time, he's going to come back and receive the church, the bridegroom unto himself. And friends, the church, Revelation 19, is to be dressed fine, linen, white, and clean, awaiting for the appearing of our husband. It is the same thing this young maiden is doing in chapter 3 of Song of Solomon. She is waiting in purity, fine, linen, white, and clean, waiting for her husband to be, to come over the hills. Friends, we, the church, are in the same season. We are to be pure, set apart, consecrated for the purpose of God, waiting on our Savior, Jesus, to appear. And here it is. Behold, their springtime love has come to the consummation of a marriage, and she's waiting for her young stag, her young stallion, to come over the hills and does he come over the hills? Yes, he does. Song of Solomon chapter 3, look at verse 6. Hey, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of the merchant? Uh-oh, here they come. You can hear the, the thunder, the rumbling of the love. Here he comes. Behold is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men. Now, in our culture, you have two groomsmen or four groomsmen or six. He has 60. 60 mighty men and around it. Some of them are mighty men of Israel. All of them wearing swords and experts in war. Each with a sword, his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. Now listen, I don't know what you showed up to on your marriage day and what you were driving. You're like, oh, I wanted a 57 Chevy. We were going to ride on with cans attached to the back saying we were just married. Look at what this dude's riding up into. Here it is. Listen. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post silver, its back gold, its seed of purple. A purple interior, men. Its interior was what? Inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon the king, of Sol king Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. It was a day in which he arrived and everybody celebrated. She had been waiting, he had been longing, and they consummate their marriage. And if you move on to chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, you can go read about their honeymoon night. Husbands, 
You can write about this to your wife. You can take God's inspired word and write your wife a love letter. Remind her of your love. That's what you see. At the latter part of, of chapter 4, you see in verse 11, you, or starting in even verse 9, you see Solomon just talks about how he's captivated by his time with her. So he just tells her, Here, here's, here's what that was for me. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now, if you're reading that, you're like, it's a little weird he just said my sister. Was that literally his sister? And the answer is no. In Hebrew tradition, it's just a, it's a, a term of endearment. Maybe it doesn't fit in our culture. I mean, so, you know, that's not the point. The point is, it's, hey, we, we are together. We are not only in love, but we are one. He goes on in verse 10, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. Because the best wines I've tasted don't compare to the love and the joy and the things I've experienced with you. And the fragrance of your oils and any spice, your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. Like, when's the last time, men, you used that line? <laughs> the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And you just see this love that went from attraction to a courtship to a marriage to a celebration of all that God has done. And friends, that, my friends is what marriage is to be, is the very thing that Alfred Kinsey and his contemporaries failed to understand. Though Kinsey, a married man, reduced his marriage merely to some acquaintances getting together. And what I'm here to tell you is, is there is a God in heaven who loves you, pursued you, and there is such romantic love from him to you, though you're a sinner, that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. That He goes, listen, even the way you love your spouse is a picture of how Christ loves you. And so he goes, you should take it seriously. And not only should you take it seriously, you don't just begin like we do in the Christian faith where there's this kind of this love that begins, right, towards your Savior. And then so quickly we drift away. And we long for the day that we could escape and have a conference or could we just go to camp one more time? We're just missing something. It seems in some ways we live in a valley and we long for a hill. And it's not only true of our relationship with God, but it's true of our spouses. It's like the springtime love disappears. And the pesky little foxes enter so quickly. And then conflict arises. And what's so awesome about this book is conflict does come. The frustration of marriage is here. Matter of fact, if you look in Song of Solomon chapter 5, look at verse 2. Here it is. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Lady, y'all understand this. I slept, but my heart was awake. What that means is, is I'm sleeping, but I'm waiting for the pitter-pattering of feet coming down the hallway. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be woken up at three in the morning because my stomach aches. You hear every sound in the night, right? In some ways you sleep, but you're not totally secure, especially if your man's not there. Here it is. She sleeps, but her heart's awake. A sound, and then she hears her beloved is knocking. And he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. He's standing outside the door and he's knocking. <laughs> Baby, my love, I'm home. Perhaps it was a long day where he was tending to the flocks. 
Certainly a cool, dreary night. Rain and dew are falling on his head. And he goes, hey, my love, my baby, my dove. Hey, dear, come on. You coming? And he waits, and he waits. And she sleeps. But her heart was awake. Verse 3, she replies, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? In Hebrew, all it means is I'm tired and I'm not getting up. (laughs) And that was her response. So he knocks at the door and she's like, listen, I've already bathed. I'm like, I'm tired. Like, hey, I've already put my clothes on. I'm not getting out of bed. My feet are going to be soiled. Like, I'm no, like, I, I love you, but this is not the time. You should have been here earlier. You can just imagine the common language, right? Ladies, you get it, and husbands, you do too. But what's interesting is the response. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. So there's something anticipating, oh, he's going to come in, even though I didn't get up. I'm now awake. But he doesn't barge through the door. Which is why this here is the picture of the man we are to be. Because though we live with our wives over time, we don't always live in an understanding way, which I think brings whole new meaning to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says these words in chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, you are to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The implication that Peter writes about is the way that you and I deal with our wives is the way that God will deal with us. You don't hear your wives You're not patient with her. Why will God hear you or be patient with you? That's the implication. And this man could have barged down the door. Hey, you're my bride. We're one. Your body's my body. He could have made every sentiment and decree that he wanted. But yet that's not what he does. Matter of fact, verse 5, she says, I arose to my beloved and then my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. He had left her a love note. He merely took out myrrh and placed it on the handles and basically said, hey, baby, I was here. I got to get back. I wanted to be with you, but hey, I'm not going to press it. I know you're tired. I know you had a long day. Hey, I understand. And in some ways, he loves her and leaves a kind note. Hey, your coffee will be waiting. Hey, I, I know you got a lot going on. Hey, I'll help here and here. We'll catch up soon. It's the idea. In some ways, that's the thing that as we read this, you ladies are like, oh my gosh, how awesome would that be? And for us men, we're like, no, nah, dude, you should have kicked down the door. <laughs> then the old Duke, you know, John Wayne kicking down the door and, hey, no, baby, you're mine, you know? But here, you see what a godly man looks like. A godly man says, here's my love note. And then look what happens. Verse Five, I arose to my beloved. Verse six, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. She was too late. This kind, gentle, humble man that she loves and now longs to be with, he awakens from her slumber, she gets to the door, and he's gone. And this is where the conflict comes in. Because she now knows, hey, I was selfish. I, I, I didn't... I didn't move in time. I could have. And now in some ways you see that she feels like she's missed it. 
And what's incredible is, is that she gets the fragrance of the myrrh and she can smell his presence, even knows that, hey, that's something we enjoy together. In some ways, she longs to be with him more, but now he's nowhere to be found. Matter of fact, in verse 6b, my soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. She begins to say, hey, baby, come here. Where, hey, where did you go? Solomon, hey, where are you? And she begins to cry out, but he's not there. And I, friends, want you to understand this part of the picture is I think what's beautifully portrayed in Revelation chapter 3 when John writes these words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Friends, Jesus is pursuing us, but yet he won't barge down the door because that's not the kind of Savior he is. And so he knocks on the heart of your, of your house and he goes, hey, will you let me come in? And he leaves us a love note and his spirit draws us unto himself. But that's the picture here. You see this faithful man, this incredible love, this pursuit of her. And she recognizes it's too late. So then you see, if you go on in chapter 5, she goes out to the city. She's kind of beat up by people. She can't get any help. Eventually comes in verse 9 to a group of people. And they ask the question, hey, why why are you looking for him this hard? What makes him so special? Matter of fact, that's what they say in verse 9. Hey, what is your beloved more than any other beloved? Oh, most beautiful among the women. What is your beloved more than any beloved? That you would adjure us. Like, what's so special about him? There's a thousand, millions of fishes in the see why are you looking so hard for him like like, why are you pursuing him this much and if you can imagine she probably has this weight of 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 guilt in some ways knowing that hey i was selfish and i didn't get up and i didn't pursue my husband and i created conflict here and i need to go and reconcile and make it right and yet it seems like that's going to be a distance like it's going to take some time and as she's going out she begins to praise her husband She begins to remind herself of the very things she proclaimed earlier in their relationship. And I think that's helpful sometimes to look back and go, why why did we love one another? Hey, why did we make commitments to one another? And that's what she begins to do. Matter of fact, in verse 10, she said, My beloved is radiant and ruddy. He's distinguished among 10,000. His head is divine as gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. And she just goes on and goes on. But perhaps the most important thing that she has noted early in the relationship and again now is he is distinguished among the 10,000. Great is his name. And a great name, men, is better than any silver or gold. Proverbs 22.1. She goes, I married a great man. And though she's on the search and certainly is struggling to, in some ways, find him and relocate him, when asked the question, where is he, in chapter 6, verses 1, they ask, well, where has your beloved gone? Oh, most beautiful among women, where has your beloved turned? We may seek him with you. We'll we'll help you find him. Where is he? And then look what she says next, because she knows where he is. Because when when you marry a faithful man, you know where he is. You don't need a tracker on his phone. You know where he is because he is a man of integrity. He is a man who is faithful. He is a man who is godly. He is a man of character. His name is never been mocked. It's never been ruined. You are confident because you're not worried. You don't go to sleep in agony. You're not awake at night, though asleep, because your heart is anxious. He's not out doing anything that's improper. You know, confident of who he is. And then look what she says. In chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, she says, My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to graze in the gardens and gather lilies. I know where he is. He's tending to his flocks. He, he's, he's down where exactly where I know he is, back where we used to meet in the noon hour, where I used to stumble upon his work. I know where to find him. 
And then she says these words, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. She repeats the phrase that she said in the springtime love in chapter two, verse 16, the exact same phrase. He was my beloved then and he's my beloved now. What is she saying? She said, we made a commitment that in our attraction and our courtship, that as we consummated our love, that there would be challenges. There would be highs and lows. There would be ups and downs. There would be valleys, crevices and cracks. There would be times where I beheld my young stud and I told him that. There would be other times where I struggled to look him in the face and to say anything kind. But my beloved is mine and I am my beloved. We made a promise that we would leave our father and mother and cling together as one flesh. And we're standing on that. And you see a faithful love. And listen, this faithful love is not just a picture of a faithful love of a young couple. This is a faithful love and a promise of our Savior that he says, I'll never leave nor forsake you. That you are held in the cleft of the rock. That he hides you in the palm of his hand, John 10. His father's hand is even greater. That he will not let you go. Why? Because he loves you. And he'll pursue you. And there's many of us today that the great thing we need to know is not about our marriage, but about what David says in Psalm 51. Lord, would you return to me the joy of your salvation? There's some of us that would say, Lord, I've wandered off from your love. I've not been faithful. And I I want to be faithful to you. You gave up your son for me and I want to live for you. And that's your step today. Now, there's some others of us in this step that we need to, we need to, take some romantic steps. Why? Because God is the author of romantic love. And Valentine's is two days away. So let me just encourage you real quick. Here you go. Men, number one. This week, my encouragement to you, not everybody will do it, but it's my encouragement. And you can send me an email later because I'm throwing you under the bus right now. Here it is. Write your wife a note and use vivid language from the Song of Solomon. God-inspired, holy language, and write your dove a note and love her. You haven't done that for ages. I have locked up in our storage container an entire box of notes and journals, literally a dozen journals where Kelly and I wrote to each other. It's a lost art. In a day of, of internet and we don't even pick up the pencil or the pen. And I'm encouraging you men to do that this week. Write your bride, your beloved, a note. Ladies, I don't know why you couldn't tell your young stag, your stud, to meet you on the heels of Lebanon. Whatever. <laughs> Get after it. <laughs> Praise God. I mean, seriously. That should happen more. And your kiddos should see that not only are you loved, but one of the things that my kiddos distate like more than anything is the awkwardness in which I can create in the middle of the marketplace. As I lean over and kiss my bride or grab her up next to me and, and just my beloved knows that she's mine. And your kiddos ought to know that. There's security knowing that. The second thing is simply this, if I could just encourage you, is there's some of us in here that we need to catch some foxes that are pesky and are kind of ruining some things in our relationship. What are they? Pride, selfishness, 
anger, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness. The list is endless, right? Catch the pesky foxes. If I could put in the East Texas redneck slang for you guys, just so you know, when there's a predator in the forest, you get your gun out and you shoot the predator. Right? Get rid of the pesky fox. Identify it. Admit it. And then in humility, say, hey, listen, this is something I've identified. I need to own this and let's move forward. Because that honors God. And that's the kind of risky love that God has provided for us and we should provide for one another. So catch the fox. Now, real quickly, I, I wouldn't call this a fox because in Proverbs 121, we know that children are blessing from the Lord. They're a heritage from the Lord. They're arrows in the hand of a warrior. But what I would just say is this, is that children can, if not careful, create some challenges in the time that we spend with one another. And, and what I would just encourage you to do is, is pay attention to that. And, and so just be thinking about, like, hey, how do we, in the, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of sports, in the midst of dropping and picking up and doing all the things, in the midst of a season of diapers and, and the endless season of feeding and spitting up and all these things, and in the midst of being everybody in the house tired and in some ways going along as zombies. Like, hey, how do we create a culture where we're going to make time for one another to allure and adjure one another? Friends, figure that out. It's worth it. And you need to do that. And here's the third thing. And, and this is just kind of, it's just, just as you walk out of this room, don't let culture lie to you about who the greatest romancer is. Because the greatest romance there is is a God in heaven who loves you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's done to you. There's a God in heaven who says, listen, I know that you feel like you are just among one of the lilies on the planet, but I want you to know that you are a lily among the brambles. I see something special in you and I want to draw you and I want you to follow me. And he willingly gave his son for that. He demonstrated that love in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that he gave his son for you and I. And you're not just a bramble but you're a lily among the rambles. God loves you and he wants more for you and he wants more from you. He wants you to easily walk out into a culture where Kinsey and Sanger and so many other of his contemporaries are saying, hey, you are merely an animal. God is saying, no, 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 no. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are, you are a creation of a divine creator. I love you and I have divine purpose for your life. Don't settle for less. And friends, if I could just implore you in that, go and be God's people. And may it start right there with your bride or with your groom. And if you're single and you're like, this message wasn't for me, it is for you. And I'll show you that next week as we talk about God in everyday life and why singlehood is not a bad thing. And, and why you should wait until that young stud comes. And if he doesn't ever show, I want you to know there's a greater stud that will fill you in more meaningful ways. And his name is Jesus. Let me pray for us, friends. And may you go and be encouraged. Father in heaven, who knew that we could talk about such amazing things? Who knew that you were the greatest romanticizer there was? Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the ways that you show us who you are and what you desire for us, a relationship in which we could declare 
I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Lord, thank you that you love us so much and that no matter where we've been, what we've done, or what's been done to us, there's a God in heaven who loves us and we don't have to work our way to you because you worked our way to us and you gave your son and we thank you. And so we close and sing to you, Lord, because great is your name and great is your faithfulness and great is your love. In Jesus' name, amen.